Let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we have just sung that as a prayer because we are dependent upon you for all those things. So hear that prayer, Lord, and speak to us right now through your word with the help of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can people really change? Or is it that after so many years of being one way, maybe from birth, we just are who we are, and no real fundamental change is possible? Now, there might be ways in which we say, no, we can't, and... Uh, want everybody else to just accept that about us. There are other ways in which we'd say, I sure hope so. I have to change. Or we might say, they better change. But if anyone's really going to change, it's the heart and mind that must change. And it's not clear which one comes first. If you just look at the last few years of this country, uh, the heart interprets the news. If the facts don't agree with our desires or goals, they're not acceptable facts. At the same time, however, unless someone believes something to be true, well, there's no chance of a change of heart. So again, can people really change? Are there ways in which you want to change? Or see that you need to change. The Bible tells us that God is our hope for true change and that this change is necessary for life with him. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 3 and we'll look at how this necessary change comes about and the hope that comes with it. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 943. 943, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses, and this morning we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now for context, remember that back in chapter 1 we met John the Baptist. He's clearly a prophet, and everybody wants to know whether or not he's actually the Messiah. Well, John points us to Jesus the Lamb of God, and when Jesus shows up, John's followers start following Jesus. And then they also testify, Jesus is the Messiah. And then in chapter 2, Jesus demonstrates in a miraculous way that he is, in fact, who they say that he is. And some people believe in him. And then very important for our passage today is in chapter 2, verse 24. Where Jesus says, or where it says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus could see into people's hearts, and he could see their true spiritual state. And then we meet 
Nicodemus. That's who shows up in our passage today. And he's probably the last guy that looks like he needs to change. And yet Jesus says, in order for him to see the kingdom of God, or for us, anyone, we all must change. And he tells us how that's possible. So here's what we must do today, if you're taking notes. Rely on heavenly power and believe in heavenly words for heavenly change. Rely on heavenly power and believe in heavenly words for heavenly change. And I don't really know how I'm using heavenly. I think I'm getting at supernatural. You know, the kind of change that we need from God to be like God. And so if you're taking notes to help you listen and apply this call from Jesus here, we'll break down the call in its three parts. First, see your need for change. It's in verses 1 through 3. See your need for change. Second, rely on God's power for that change. Verses 4 through 8. Rely on God's power for that change. And then third, believe God's word and be changed. 9 through 13. Believe God's word and be changed. So first, see your need for change. Look at verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is a very helpful person to meet in this conversation because he's a Pharisee, which means he's very serious about his faith. When it comes to things like the Sabbath, the Pharisees kept very stringent rules that the Jews came up with to make sure that they wouldn't end up breaking God's rule. So, for example, to keep themselves from carrying a, a burden that's too heavy on the Sabbath, they wouldn't carry food heavier than a dry fig, or more milk than you could swallow in one gulp. Because less than that is certainly not a burden. And they were highly respected for such religious devotion. And based on his question here, Nicodemus seems to be one of those very sincere Pharisees. So he comes to Jesus with great respect, calling him rabbi, and affirming that Jesus is a teacher from God. Now he comes at night, and we're not sure why. It could be just that he's, he's very busy. He's not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Jews, which means he's part of the Sanhedrin. If you're wondering what that is, you can kind of think of serving as a, a senator in the Senate, you know, giving you an idea. But in addition to this position, we also know he's well-educated and comes from a high-class family. And given Jesus' recent actions in the temple, being seen with Jesus could come with some social costs. And so maybe he doesn't want to be seen. Either way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, especially if this is your first time, I just want to say how glad we are that you're here. I mean, thanks both for taking the time to come and also being willing to walk into a church. I know that's not always easy. But now that you've made it and you're here, we want you to get the most out of it. We want you to hear from God. 
And actually, I think that's the best explanation for why John tells us that Nicodemus came at night. If we just look at the way John's, John uses the word night elsewhere. Four other times, the word is used metaphorically to refer to someone's spiritual state. Nicodemus literally comes to Jesus at night, but John sees something more significant there. This sincere man of faith is still in the dark, spiritually. So Nicodemus wants to hear from Jesus. Because he can tell he's a teacher that's come from God. And what's implied by the way Nicodemus addresses Jesus that way is a question Uh, Something along the lines of, what do we need to hear from God? What's required of me? Because verse 3, Jesus replies, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus just wastes no time here. There's no thank you, Nicodemus. There's there's no real interest in Nicodemus' affirmation. He just goes straight to the heart of the issue and says, truly, I tell you. It's an expression of absolute certainty. He's capitalizing on what Nicodemus just said. Okay, you say that I'm a teacher from God? Well, truly, I tell you. So this is something Nicodemus has just put himself in a position where you've got to hear this, Nicodemus, and you've got to deal with it. And it deals with the most important matter. Seeing. The kingdom of God. This is what all faithful Jews were longing for. They believed that the Messiah would would come and bring the blessings of God's kingdom into uh, among them. They, that they would experience life in this world with God's presence dwelling with them. As the Gospel of John unfolds, seeing the kingdom of God is a reference to life in the new creation. It's a life in a world that's untouched by the curse of sin. Which means there's no more death. As Jesus says in verse 15, it's eternal life. Heaven is this world reborn. Or you could say, this world made new. It's a perfect world where Jesus reigns and the presence of God fills our entire existence here. So, no more No more news about life being cut short by tragedy. Never again will someone say that my home is an unsafe place. Never again will there be fear of a pandemic or war. As Jonathan Edwards once wrote, heaven is a world of love. Friends, you want to see the kingdom of God. You don't want to just know about it or hear about it. You want to see it. But Jesus says, unless someone is born again, you can't. So right there, Jesus is acknowledging that everyone has a natural birth, you know, and that we are a certain way from that natural birth. And in that natural state, no one can see God's kingdom. That's because our first parents plunged this whole world into a spiritual curse, the curse of death. And so when we're born into this world, we are born spiritually dead in our sins. The the natural inclination of our flesh and thoughts is rebellion against God. Have you ever wondered why with 
with all of our knowledge of history, with all the technological advancements we've made, with all the yearly calls for peace and love among all people, the world just continues to be full of all kinds of evil and hate and suffering. And oftentimes that's because of our own sin. Even the good that we do is is tainted by things like pride. And so even though we're alive, the Bible says we're dead. And in that state, we'll face God's judgment. So, like Jesus says here, a supernatural change must take place in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that to a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Think about it. No one has better credentials than Nicodemus here. What more can Nicodemus do or be? He's a Jew, circumcised, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and the teacher of Israel, according to verse 10. So, I don't know how you compare, but there could be few Jews in the entire city of Jerusalem that could be more likely to inherit the kingdom of God than Nicodemus. And yet, according to Jesus, Nicodemus needs a new spiritual state. Nicodemus needs a change of heart. He needs a change of mind for a real change in life. So we should note that we just, we couldn't hang out with Jesus or Nicodemus and say, but I'm a good person. The change that Jesus is calling for in us isn't like the changing from the color of gray to a lighter shade of gray but from black to white. If you want to be a Christian, it's not about going to church, making improvements, and trying your best. Being a Christian is about becoming something new. If you're going to see the kingdom from above, then you must be born from above. That is the only way, way to gain citizenship in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear someone's a born-again Christian, I can hear that in one or two ways different than I want to. I might be skeptical. So many people claim to be born-again Christians, and yet it hardly makes a radical difference in their lives. After claiming to become a born-again Christian, Larry Flint included Christian articles in his pornographic magazine. Many celebrities essentially do the same thing in their music or movies, maybe just to a different degree. And many churchgoers do the same things with their lives. They look just like the world. But sometimes I hear someone talk about being a born-again Christian, and I get nervous. Because they might be talking more about a cultural conservatism than they are about true Christianity. And they confuse the two. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you hear that and you think of people who are detached from reality. But none of those reactions fit the glorious truth here in this text. And we as a church need to recover the term born again in order to be faithful. Because really the term born again Christian is redundant. It's like describing a three-sided triangle or, or, or pointing to something and saying that circle is a round circle. 
In the Bible, to be a Christian is to be someone made new or born again. That person has new desires to obey God's word and therefore they keep God's word. They love graciously, forgive readily, serve joyfully, and suffer hopefully. They don't store up treasures on earth but in heaven because they live on earth as if they're just passing through on their way home to where their true citizenship is. So when I ask if someone's a Christian, I'm not asking about what that person claims to be. I know lots of people who go to church and call themselves Christians that aren't Christians because they're more like Nicodemus. They're religious people who believe true things about Jesus But are they really trusting in Christ alone for their righteousness before God? Do they have a genuine conviction over their sin that leads to true repentance? Do they genuinely love God and love their brothers and sisters in Christ? They do if their hearts and minds have been changed. If if eternal life has begun in them already. Now, how does that happen? That's Nicodemus' question in these next verses, and it teaches us the next way to obey the call of these verses. And just fair warning, this will be the largest section of our sermon. So when we get to the third point, you don't have to sweat any more than you might be already. So, second, rely on God's power for change. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, people often make Nicodemus out to be clueless here, as if he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. But if you've ever listened to philosophers talk or maybe lawyers talk, there's a way of conversing to arrive at the truth. So you might speak in hypothetical scenarios or with illustrations. And it's the same thing with theologians. And often, when theologians talk this way, they use metaphors. In fact, there's a a rabbinical saying that Nicodemus would have have known. A proselyte proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. Plus, a highly educated man like Nicodemus doesn't really think that an adult can go back into their mother's womb and be born again. I think he's answering Jesus' metaphor with a metaphorical question. Nicodemus' response isn't a question about meaning or possibility, but about how the miracle of rebirth happens. And that's why Jesus doesn't rebuke Nicodemus, as he does down in verse 10, for not understanding He just responds to the question without any problem. And he responds with absolute certainty again. Verse 5, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that's not really an answer to how this happens. But what it is. And the reason for that is because Jesus can't answer how this happens before understanding what this rebirth is. In fact, the rebirth, explaining what that is, will explain how it happens. He's not talking about a a natural rebirth. It's not something like reincarnation, but a birth of water and spirit. 
So what's that? Well, when it comes to water, there's a good chance that there's at least a connection to baptism here. Because we've just read about John the Baptist. That's on the original reader's mind at this point. And, and people were getting ready for God's coming king. Not to mention, it was Nicodemus's group of Pharisees that sent the priests and Levites to investigate John's baptism. But if that's the case, we still have to ask the question, what's the connection to baptism? If that's what Jesus is thinking of in part. Well, one way to read the Bible is if you ever have confusion about something in the New Testament, search for its explanation in the Old Testament. And in this case, the the combination of water and spirit has an obvious Old Testament connection, making it clear that Jesus is pointing us to the spiritual realities that John's baptism of repentance pointed to. And those spiritual realities are tied to the promises regarding God's new covenant with his people from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. And there in Ezekiel... God's people are being judged for their rebellion, and they're going into exile. So it's, it's, it's a very bleak moment, as Jesse was leading us earlier. They, they are under despair. And yet, God promises a coming day when their relationship will be restored, and they'll experience his promised blessings. And this is how God will do it. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that promise of change is followed up by a vision in chapter 37, which we read earlier, where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones And as the word of God is proclaimed to these bones, they begin to put on flesh and they come to life. It's a picture of dead people coming to life. It's a picture of that promise in chapter 36. Because Israel's rebellion against God essentially resulted in the death of a nation. But Ezekiel's vision anticipates its rebirth. They're going to have a resurrection-like experience as they return from exile and live in the land again. And yet, as they do, we find out that their problem of sin remains. So clearly, as we come to the end of the Old Testament, the problem of Ezekiel 36 and the vision of chapter 37 has pointed us beyond to something even greater. Something promised to everyone who believes. It's the outpouring of God's spirit by which spiritual rebels against God are turned into spiritual lovers of God. Where spiritually dead people are given new life. And only God can do that. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Knowing what the new birth is, that it's this kind of change of heart, that it's this kind of cleansing, means it's something that only God can bring about, and only he he does. 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 Verse 6, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. He's saying we can only reproduce what we are. So on our own, 
the only change that we're capable of making is really a change of degree. Flesh produces flesh. And Jesus has already seen the inside of people in chapter 2, verse 24. We're sinners who sin. We must be cleansed with the water of God so that our sins are washed away. And we need to be given new hearts so that we learn to love and obey God. That's not something that we can generate. Put simply, the kind of rebirth that people need to see the kingdom of God only happens by God's Spirit. Now some religions, even other versions of Christianity, are essentially fleshly religions. They're just moralism on top of spirituality. But there's no really essential difference in the heart. It's it's just moralism. And the world can have that. The world is seeking that. Now, I'm not saying that we're all as bad as we we could be. I mean, praise God that we, we can say there are many good people in the world, morally speaking, even if they're not good in the way that God is good. But that kind of moral life doesn't help people see the kingdom of God. Because God is a perfectly holy and just God. So, All sins that we've committed and the problem of sin must be dealt with. And apart from God's spirit, religion can only produce moralism at best. Flesh creates flesh. That's why you can find dead religions or dead churches or spiritually dead people bouncing from one philosophy to another, always searching for life. It's because it's all based on human strength, human ideas, human achievements. But clearly, as sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so anything beyond trusting in Christ is really just dressing up skeletons. And until you recognize your need for change and your utter dependence upon God for that change, you won't change. Not at a fundamental level. You might make improvements, but that won't save you from hell. Jesus is judge And he already sees what's in people. I don't know what you think of as your biggest problem today. You might think of what causes you the most anxiety as you look out into the future. Or maybe you think of your biggest problem as what you're still still dealing with from your past. But Just help yourself out right here and think about that thing, whatever that is. that, That fear that source of anger or sadness, whatever it is you find yourself regularly praying about, and tell yourself, that's not my biggest problem. That's not your biggest problem. It's our sin. It needs to be dealt with. That's what Ezekiel was preaching by the time that Israel's heading into exile. And I'm sure at that point, those people thought that their biggest problem was a ruthless nation who was coming to kill and plunder them. And maybe they're afraid of, if they survive, they're going to end up as slaves in a foreign land. Those would be legitimate fears and big problems. And yet that's not what Ezekiel says is their biggest problem. 
In a sense, what he says is, you'll never be rid of the problems in a sinful world, and you'll never enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom until sin is dealt with, including the sin that's in your own heart. We need God to save us and the power of his spirit to cleanse and change us. And he does that through his son, Jesus. Jesus comes as God in the flesh and lives a perfect life of love towards God. He demonstrates God's heart because he is God in the flesh. And so he lives that perfect life on our behalf. And when he dies on the cross, he bears our sin and suffers the wrath of God so that our sins might be washed away in God's sight. He cleanses us by his blood. And because he is raised to new life, Jesus sends his spirit into the world to all those who believe on him, that we might be changed, that we might be included in what he did on the cross and experience his life. That's how we see the kingdom of God. It's how we experience it. Actually, John's theology is very consistent in his other letters. Throughout the letter, the letter of 1 John, he writes to the other churches, he, he says that those who practice righteousness, those who triumph over sin, who love God and love others, those who believe, have all been born of God. And in every case, the word for born is in the perfect tense, which means the new birth comes before the practice of righteousness, before avoiding sin or loving God or even believing in Christ. Doing those things doesn't result in getting the Spirit. They flow from having the Spirit. So, Christian, you want to know how to live the Christian life and apply this passage right now to your life? You want follow-through on trusting God's Word today? For steadfast obedience in the face of ongoing temptations that just won't leave you alone? Well, you're not going to find success in something about you or something that we can do in our own strength. Nicodemus was the best at that, and it doesn't work. Jesus' answer for seeing the kingdom is the same answer you need for living it. It's by the power of the Spirit. So how do you walk in the Spirit? Experience that power? Well, there's not a magical button that you can push. Nothing's going to come zap you out of the sky. You have to act on what you read in God's word and trust that the Spirit's involved. You have to pray for God's help and trust that the Spirit will answer. You have to meditate on the gospel so that you're motivated to both trust and obey from a place of assurance and joy. That's where inner strength comes from. So let's just say that I'm dealing with chronic pain, years of it, and I'm growing weary and struggling with unbelief. Well, I got to go back to the center of my faith and read about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners like me and know that because of that truth, I am loved by God, that I am righteous in his sight. And therefore he is for me and he is with me and he is sovereign in my situation. And so I pray To that God, based on that gospel, for help. And the Spirit begins to work in my heart by God's grace so that I now have strength. Not because of anything about me, but because of the truth of God's word and the power of prayer and the hope of the gospel working in me by the power of the Spirit. That's the Christian life. 
It's living from grace-filled power, not from a place of human strength and our ability to keep some law or, some, or do some duty. It's an altogether different life brought on by the Spirit. And apparently, Nicodemus is amazed by this. Verse 7. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Everyone born of the Spirit had nothing to do with it. And Nicodemus should know from the Scriptures that man's great problem would result in a total inability to do anything about it. And yet that's hard to accept. In fact, many people would want to read this, listen to this, and, and, and may want to butt in on Jesus right here and, and just let him know. Actually, Jesus, if, if, if you'll just have the priest sprinkle you with, with that water, you could enter the kingdom of God. You know, go through confirmation, do penance, and, and you can see it. Or others might actually say, no, it's, it's easier than that. Jesus, just tell them to recite a prayer. They'll be born again. But Jesus says, verse 8, no, that's not the way it works. You have no control over the Spirit's work. He operates just like the wind. You can't see him. You don't know where he comes from or where he's going. He just does what he pleases. That's how everyone is born of the Spirit. Which means if you sense him this morning, if you feel your need for God's mercy, and his word is, is just is weighing on your heart right now, don't ignore that. That is mercy from God right now. And so if that's something that you sense this morning, you need to pray for God's help. You need to lean into what he's doing in you and ask for help that you would trust in Christ and commit your life to him. And if you're here and God's word is already sweet to you, if you have thanksgiving in your heart towards Christ, if you're, if you're someone who's hopeful of heaven and you have peace even in this world of suffering, then give praise to God. I mean, rejoice this morning. Be thankful. Be obedient. Be hopeful. Be humble. It's a miracle. You've experienced a miracle. And since it's a miracle, depending on the sovereignty of the Spirit, we need to ask, does evangelism really matter? If we have no control over the Spirit's movement, what does that mean for us as a church? Well, with absolute certainty, we should say yes. In fact, the word for wind can also mean spirit or even the breath of God, both in the New and Old Testaments. Anywhere you see in the New or Old spirit, it could also be wind or breath. And what's significant about that here is what happens or what we read in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel speaks God's word to the bones, and they take on flesh. And then, God, and then Ezekiel speaks God's word to the breath. And God says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain. 
And then God says, I'll do this for my people. I'll put my spirit in them. Ezekiel speaks God's word. He prophesies to the breath and God says, come breath from the four winds, breathe. So saving faith is the spirit's work alone. But this might be where Paul gets his theology and says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. So when you preach the gospel, think about what a sailor does. You can't determine which way the wind is blowing, but you can throw up the sails and trust that the wind is going to move the boat. But if you don't evangelize and pray, you can be confident that you won't see the Spirit save anyone. No one's hearing. No one's being saved. At least not through uh, your efforts. God works through natural means. Now, again, that doesn't mean we can manipulate the Spirit or that we can manipulate people in order to get the results we want. In fact, we should strongly avoid any method that might create false conversions and therefore give people a false assurance of salvation. It's possible to build attractive ministries with strategies that are effective for gathering crowds of people on Sundays. And then at the same time, because of that, put them at risk of being surprised on the day of judgment by the announcement that Jesus never knew them. Because instead of winning people to Jesus, they were won to some service or program or feeling. So as I've said before, the kind of ministry we want here at Grace Harbor is the kind of ministry that will fail if God's word isn't true. We want the kind of ministry that will fail if God's word isn't true. And I mean that as a pastor. If this isn't true, I'd just rather go do something else. So I I would rather just operate by what this this word says. And if if the doors close and, and we all go do something else because this isn't true, I feel better about that. But because it is true. And I believe that this is how God's spirit works. The only way that we want to gather as a church and do the work of the ministry is in a way that's completely dependent upon the word. So when we see any real change or any good thing in our church, we praise God. Because we can't explain it by any one person or event. Not that we're trying to avoid emotions. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we don't want to manipulate emotions. We want our joy in this church to be an obvious response to God's truth and grace. And if that's where we put our confidence, I think we can have a godly expectation of seeing the Spirit work. Because wherever Jesus saw faith, he decided on his own to work miracles there. Okay, so the the faith didn't cause the miracles. Jesus chose to work through them. And in his hometown, he did less miracles because of the people's lack of faith. It's the same with the Spirit. We can't determine when and where he works. We're not the cause of of him working. But we can determine how big of a spiritual sail that we hoist up in this church. If you want to see God's Spirit work in you and in others... Church, speak God's word. Proclaim the gospel. Live a godly life. 
Love the church. Love your neighbors and pray, pray, pray. And if you do that, you can expect the Spirit to move for the glory of God. We're never the cause of God's sovereign grace, but we can be the means because of the truth and power of God's word. And that brings us to the final reason that we should obey this call to heavenly change. It's because this truth comes from heaven. So believe God's word and be changed. Look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus doesn't understand how it can be this way. And given his life, maybe that's not a surprise, but he's amazed. And Jesus seems to be amazed with Nicodemus. Verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? In the original, there's a definite article there suggesting that Nicodemus has a unique position as a teacher in Israel. He's the teacher. Uh, Maybe the theological head of the Sanhedrin. We don't know. But he should have understood these things. Because based on what Jesus says here, it's all coming out of the Old Testament, which is Nicodemus' area of expertise. Now, I'm guessing that he wished he would have kept his mouth shut right here because he set himself up back in, chapter t- in verse 2, right? We know you're a teacher from God. We know that. So Jesus says, well, then you've got to believe me. Because verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I can tell you what it takes to, to enter into God's kingdom and have eternal life. I'm the Son of Man. That's the one from Daniel 7 who approaches the Ancient of Days and he's given all authority in heaven and on earth and a kingdom that will never pass away. Jesus says, I've come from above and I am that man. You know, if someone gets up to testify in court, it's because they were there at the event in question. They saw it, they experienced it, and so they're the authority on the truth of that event. Jesus can speak about heavenly things because he's the son of man. He has descended. So you must believe him. But here's the problem. They don't even listen to Jesus on earthly things. How how are they going to listen to Jesus on heavenly things? If they're not going to listen to Jesus about what they can see, how are they going to listen to him about things of the future? of the spiritual realm, that they can't see. So just pause here. When it comes to who or what you believe about life after death, are you really going to bank everything on the opinions and theories of people who have never died? No one can speak authoritatively on, on death, right? Or heaven, except for Jesus, He's the only one. Yes, I know there are people who have died and they've claimed they've gone to heaven. They've written books about that. But, but there's no way to prove that. Right? On the other hand, this is what makes Christianity stand apart from all other religions. When Jesus came, he came in the way that scripture foretold. John, who was clearly a prophet, 
testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then Jesus did many miracles as signs that demonstrated he's from God. And we have eyewitness testimony of those miracles. And when he died, it wasn't for a brief moment. It was for days. And the historical evidence proves that the resurrection is a historical fact if we judge it the same way that we do all other historical facts. So again, when it comes to who or what you believe about life after death, and you will die, so you have to decide this. Are you really going to bank eternity on what amounts to the opinions and theories of people who have zero experience of death and who are unable to see the spiritual realm? Or... Are you going to believe the one man who demonstrated that he comes from the spiritual realm and who died and rose again? John has written this gospel so that we believe. And so if you're not a Christian, please listen to the scriptures. If you, help, if you want help understanding who Jesus is or what the gospel is, we have a couple of books that we would love to give you. And I just encourage you to, to meet up with a person who, who you probably came with this week, uh, but if you came alone, please talk with me after the door. We would love to get you some help. And if that's intimidating, or if, or if you're here and this is all kind of confusing and overwhelming, let I me mean, just encourage you here. Nicodemus seems confused and overwhelmed, but he didn't stay there. He shows up again in chapter 7 as part of the Sanhedrin in defense of Jesus, and he's accused of being one of his followers. And then we see him again at Jesus' death, helping Joseph of Arimathea take care of his body. Everything suggests that Nicodemus experiences this new birth and enters into the kingdom of God. Isn't that hopeful? Even self-righteous religious people can get saved. Hallelujah. But he believed the heavenly man about heavenly things, and we must also, if we're going to change like Nicodemus, Jesus calls us to believe his words, and in the very next verses, we'll cover next week, to trust in him. That's why we put so much emphasis on the Bible in this church. We're we're not here for our entertainment. We're not interested in anyone else's ideas, not, not my ideas. We want life from God. And so we come here to hear from him in his word, in order that his spirit might work in us. And so let me just talk to the kids in the room. I know it's been a long sermon, so just listen, listen up here. You need to know what a blessing it is that you're here, growing up in church, hearing the Word of God. But we also want you to know, based on this sermon today, that it's not enough to grow up in church. It's not enough to pray right now. You need to live differently from the rest of the world because you truly love God in your heart. Otherwise, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want to encourage you as your pastor to to take advantage of this blessing that you have of growing up in the church and pay attention to what you hear. Pray that what you hear will enter your heart and change you. And and here's my challenge. Beyond just telling me one thing at the door or drawing me a picture of something, tell your parents when you get home one thing that you heard from the sermon. And then, parents, you can pray with your kids about that one thing. In church, I would say that application could be made to all of us. It's a blessing to be here. Every day, we're fed ideas by people who are living for life in this world according to the desires of their flesh. And it's so easy for us to be shaped by that. 
Don't let your eyes, what your eyes see on a daily basis, determine your heart's desires. Instead, make every effort to have your desires, desires shaped by what you read and hear from God's word. Make your worldview conform to the Bible. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Obey it. Gather weekly to hear it. Read it daily. This is how you experience life already in the kingdom. So to conclude, everyone's calling for hope and change today. Who will you believe for it? Who will you believe for hope and change, especially as it comes to your life? When it comes to the life that you truly desire, deep down you know that we're all made for. Only Jesus can be trusted. And he's willing not only to change us, but to change our world and invite us to live in it with him forever. That's the hope. So don't put your trust in anyone or anything else. Rely on his power and believe his word for real change. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this good news, for this truth that is sweet to our soul, that your spirit can make us alive in Christ and that we can know you, be changed by you, and enjoy you forever. And God, we pray that you would use your word today in order to help us experience that more and one day truly in your presence. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.